Today's episode of Vox Tablet is a sponsored post on behalf of Yale University Press and their Jewish Lives series. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm Sarah Ivry. Today, we're talking about Sigmund Freud. There are two big reasons why it would be daunting to write a biography of Freud for a book series called Jewish Lives. First, there's the fact that Freud seemed almost to boast that he was completely ignorant of everything that concerned Judaism. So what sort of a Jewish life could he have been said to lead? Second, there's the more disconcerting fact that Freud held a deep mistrust of biography. Indeed, before he reached the age of 30, that is, before he'd accomplished too much of anything remarkable, he was already burning his papers in order to thwart the biographers he imagined might want to read them someday. So you see what Adam Phillips was up against when he agreed to write a biography of Freud for Yale University Press's Jewish Live series. Phillips is himself a psychoanalyst, an acclaimed writer, and the general editor of the Penguin Modern Classic Translations of Freud that was published in 2006. The Man Knows Freud. His new book is called Becoming Freud, and we are very excited to have him with us today so we can ask him why he chose to tackle this inherently prickly project and what he learned about Freud along the way. Adam Phillips, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you. Adam, was this book your idea or the idea of an editor? How did it come to be? No, it's not a book I would have initiated doing or indeed thought of ever writing. So I was offered the prospect of doing it. And I was interested in the prospect of doing it once it was suggested. Because, as you say, I just edited all this Freud, these new Freud translations. And so I had been over a period of years quite immersed in the books. And I was also very interested in the fact it was a Jewish live series because it was as though that gave you a focus immediately. And I was interested to find out about what it was like for those Jews in Central Europe at the end of the 19th century as they'd begun to sort of migrate to big cities like Vienna. Uh, and also, as you said, I was interested in Freud's ambivalence about being Jewish, that he never didn't remotely denied being Jewish, but that psychoanalysis itself became really quite a powerful critique of religion in general and clearly was itself a reflection on Judaism. I'd love for you to do for our listeners what you did for your readers, which is to say, give us a quick bare-bones outline of Freud's life, just to orient us a little bit, and then we'll get into the reasons why Freud would have objected to your project. Well, Freud was born in 1856. He seems to have been the um, son of his father's second or third marriage. It's ambiguous simply because, of course, those the lives of those Jewish people were not documented. So there's a suggestion that his father had a, a, a third wife. Um, Freud's mother was very much younger than his father. His father was a merchant, a wool merchant, but a not a very successful one. So um, when Freud was three, they migrated first to Germany and then on to Vienna. Freud then lived in Vienna until 1938 when he left because of the Nazis. In that period, he was the eldest and the first son of his parents. Um, he was clearly a special child in that traditional Jewish way of being the oldest boy. He was also obviously a brainy person. Uh, he was interested in things. So he quite quickly became interested as a young man in primarily languages, ancient history, uh, and particularly Don Quixote was very, very important to him as a novel. Um, anyway, he, after considering studying law, he trained to be a doctor. 
he became interested in neuro- what's now called neurology. He then went to Paris to study with Charcot, the great neurologist of his age. And from that experience with Charcot in Paris, he came back and, as it were, invented psychoanalysis. And what that meant was he invented a treatment for what were then called neuroses that was entirely based on talking. There were no drugs. The only thing that was exchanged was words and money. And the project was to alleviate people's suffering by redescribing their symptoms in different ways, linking their present suffering to their childhood experiences. So Freud had, as everybody now knows, two preoccupations. One was childhood and the other was sexuality. And over a period of about 30 years, Freud developed what became the discipline of psychoanalysis. To begin with, it was very much of a solo project. And then by about 1906, when he was in, he was 50, he had um, written, as it were, five main texts, which became kind of both textbooks, not in a boring sense, but they were the fundamental books of psychoanalysis. After that, people began to come from all over Europe because they'd read the books to meet Freud to learn about psychoanalysis. So before the Second World War, it became an international movement. Freud then, in the last years of his life, moved to London, where he died in 1939. Let me ask you, how would you characterize the Jewish world uh, that Freud was a part of? I need to preface this by just saying, A, I'm really quite ignorant, and B, I think everybody's a bit ignorant, because, of course, it's very undocumented. Um, It seems to me it was a very insecure existence, that Jews lived in their own communities, but, of course, they were always guests and never hosts. Uh, They were there, broadly speaking, on sufferance. There was a great deal of anti-Semitism. I don't mean by that everybody was persecuted all the time, but clearly there was a great deal of suspicion, an abiding suspicion of Jews. And obviously the basic question is, who were the Jews fundamentally allied with? Were they allied with themselves or were they allied with the nation states they were living in? So it made them immediately ambiguous figures. The fact of being Jewish meant that there were all sorts of prohibitions on what people were able to to actually do for a living. So it limited everybody's field. Um, but of course, in the, from the middle of the 19th century onwards, there was a sort of liberalizing in Europe. So that in some ways, it was a period when Jews began to feel they could have a genuinely more integrated civil life. They could actually participate in the cultures they were living in rather than simply as were hide in them. Um, so I think that it was mostly impoverished, and there were, of course, exceptions. It was very anxious, Um, And I think there was a more generalized anxiety about what was happening to Jewish culture, a feeling that actually it was dissipating. How much significance or weight did Freud give to the fact that he was Jewish? I think he gave it total significance in the sense that, as I said, he never denied being Jewish. Most of the people he worked with were Jews, both patients and colleagues. Uh, He was um, a member of Jewish societies in Vienna. He wrote about Judaism. Um, So I think that Freud was probably typical of that class of Jews in Vienna at the time. That is to say, he was a secular Jew in the sense that he didn't go to synagogue. He had no religious affiliation. Indeed, he was extremely skeptical of religion altogether. But he had an absolutely, utterly Jewish upbringing and family life. He married a Jewess. His children were brought up, again, not to be religious Jews, but to be Jews. But I understand that in some ways he in terms of his wife, who came from quite an erudite rabbinical family, he suppressed her uh, desire to practice. Yes, I mean, I think it was very important to Freud that he could, as it were, convert his fiance to atheism. But I think that I imagine these things were very compromised in the sense that she, I think, wouldn't have married him if there wasn't a part of her that wanted 
this experience. Um, I don't think he was remotely that kind of bully. Um, but I think these were Jews of a generation who were trying to have different kinds of lives. You said that Freud's uh, two great contributions were in his thinking about sexuality and about childhood. In terms of sexuality, of course, there are so many stereotypes that are connected to Jews, and specifically one that has sort of been handed out over the generations is that Jews are oversexed and sort of obsessed with sex. So is this a stereotype that uh, we can thank Freud for, or, or did it predate him? And if it did, was he conscious of it, and was he conscious of the fact that he might be helping canonize that idea? It did predate him. Um, I mean, in a very familiar kind of racist, scapegoating way, that um, – Groups of people are elected, and they're often elected on the basis of an assumption that one way or another they're having more pleasure than the people who are racist. So when Jews are not being, as it were, accused of having more sexual pleasure, they're accused of having more pleasure from their money or more pleasure from their morality. So I think that Jews as scapegoats has a long and dishonorable tradition. That's one bit. The other bit is, of course, everybody's interested in sex. How could they not? Because that's why we're all here. So I, it's not as though Freud in any sense obviously invented sex, nor did he uniquely privilege it in the sense that, you know, if you read the whole of Western culture, I mean, all novels are about adultery, for example. I mean, there's a reason for this. But what Freud did do was to try and give, as it were, a scientific or rationalistic account of sexuality. But Freud is much more interesting about sexuality than all the people who think they know what he says know. Uh, if you read the three essays on sexuality, which was the main book on sex, there are after well over 100 pages of extraordinary speculation about our sexual development and so on. Freud says, but actually, we don't know anything about sex. Um, I mean, I say this in the book, that it's a very interesting thing in which he's saying we're all absolutely obsessed one way or another by sexuality, but actually we have no idea what it is, so we don't know what we're obsessed by. And so Freud was really redescribing sexuality in very, very interesting ways, but he wasn't the only person doing it at the time. Because obviously once – I mean, again, Darwin wasn't a solitary genius. But Darwin was writing about the significance of sexuality in relation to development and adaptation. So Freud is building on a tradition. Your introduction to the book is full of reflections on what makes biography and psychoanalysis similar, what makes them different, and about Freud's relationship to them both. Talk us through why Freud was so mistrustful of biography, why he saw it as antithetical to the work of psychoanalysis. I think there are two reasons. One is that, and this may seem paradoxical, but Freud really believed in the privacy of the self. He really believed that people were very, very private creatures and should be extremely selective about the people they share their inner lives with. So I think he had a kind of moral objection that it was intrusive, invasive and omniscient because there's a limit to what anybody can know about anybody else. So I think it felt – I think Freud felt on the one hand this was an unjust exposure of character. On the other hand, it was integral to what Freud was doing that he believed in what everybody now knows is called free association. Now in free association, you insofar as it's possible say what comes into your head. Now this is a very odd way of telling a story course. So what Freud was beginning to realize was that we were at our most offensive when we were at our most coherent, that all our, all our plausible narrative stories about ourselves are in fact ways of hiding ourselves. So Freud is making the case in psychoanalysis for incoherence. Now you can't write an incoherent biography, it would be the most boring thing on earth. So that Freud is saying actually 
um, si- um, biography in its very desire to tell a story is itself misleading because lives don't fall into those kinds of stories. So Freud's very sceptical about what one might be using life stories to do. So then did you feel somehow that you were dishonoring Freud's uh, legacy by even undertaking this project? Yes, it was like an experiment. I wanted to see whether I could write a biography of Freud in the light of his misgivings about biography. In other words, taking them seriously, including them in the book without making it sort of hugely pretentious or pointless, but still telling some kind of story about what might have made Freud Freud. So does psychoanalysis ask us to tell stories about ourselves in order to interrogate those stories and pull them apart and then realize eventually how unreliable those stories are or how unreliable we are as narrators of our own story? If you put it like that, it makes it sound as though um, it's like a benign form of character assassination. And it isn't that. It isn't ideally an unmasking of people. But what it is doing is showing them something about why they've constructed the stories they have constructed about themselves. In other words, what the function of those stories are. Now, uh, psychoanalysis and Freud would say these stories are produced by us in an attempt to both enable us to realize our desires and meet our needs and create sufficient safety to make this possible. So the stories are always a compromise between what we want and what we fear the consequences of that wanting might be. So that we're always trying to give plausible accounts mostly to ourselves of what we're doing, partly because we're disturbed by the unacceptable nature of a lot of things we want to do. So that um, in a way what Freud is saying, not that we're all liars and hypocrites, but that we are we feel very endangered by our own desires and by the external world. And this makes us cunning and self-deceiving in our self-presentation. Why do we feel so uh, fearful of our own desires? We feel fearful of our own desires because we desire forbidden things that bring with them the possibility of punishment or danger. We're also frightened of being overwhelmed by the intensity of our desires. So in the Freudian story, there are two stages. In the first stage, which you might equate with being little, we are, I think, very troubled as infants and young children that we can be literally overwhelmed by our feelings. Parents would say, you know, he's getting overexcited. Well, they're sort of right. So there's a question on the first hand of whether we can contain our excitement. And that develops into what Freud calls the Oedipus complex, which is that in his view, and I think he's right, we desire both the parent of the opposite sex and the parent of the same sex, and therefore each parent is both a rival and an object of desire. This is very, very dangerous. because I really have a fancy of marrying my mother and killing my father, I could be in deep trouble. In fact, I am in deep trouble. So deep trouble in Freud's story is where we start. That There's always something perilous because we're always competing for what we want and there's always the risk of not getting it. That's danger enough, I think. In the book, you trace the arc of Freud's professional development by looking at four uh, figures whom he knew either as a student or a friend or a colleague. And in considering him uh, in relationship to these men, you are uh, privileging that rather than looking at him uh, as more or less an autonomous figure. What appealed to you about that approach? Well, it's very striking that in Freud's autobiographical writings, of which there is very little, but there is an autobiographical study, Freud seems preoccupied by these male teachers. And in if you read a lot of psychoanalysis, you discover that Freud is really interested in powerful men and very much less interested in women, even though it's all about, fundamentally, that initial relationship with a woman. 
So I was struck by two things. One was how, I think in a way, evidently disappointed Freud was by his own father and by in his life the way in which he was seeking out these strong male figures. And as though, and then, of course, he develops a, a psychonic theory that is all about the Oedipus complex, about the wish to kill a father. So that it seems to me that Freud is preoccupied by something about masculinity and about something about misogyny. I love the effort that you put into the biography in trying to include Martha Bernays, Freud's wife, into the story of his life. Why was that so important for you? Well, there's an absurd sort of irony in the middle of all this, which is that Freud is saying that the fundamental and most formative relationship in one's life is with one's mother. And yet there is very, 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 very little in Freud's work, both about mothers, but less surprisingly about his own mother, and very, very little about his wife. Now, of course, he wasn't living in the kind of culture we live in now. I mean, men were not writing about their wives in that sense. But... It seems to me we have to take seriously the fact that Freud was married for a very, very long time, that he obviously fell in love with this woman, that uh, it must have been one of the most powerful, if not the, who knows, most formative relationships in his life. But the story he wants to tell about his life leaves his wife mostly out of it. Now, that could be for reasons of privacy and discretion. You know, in other words, it could be entirely honourable. Um, but I wanted to weave in the fact that his wife was a real person, that they had all these children and that was the majority of his lived life was that. Otherwise, you get this absurd myth of great men, which is really the most boring story on earth and the <laughs> least truthful. And so I wanted to weave in as far as I could the fact that this was inevitably, as all lives are, a collaborative life. You also note in the book that Freud was utterly disinterested in politics and that was a stance that for many of his fellow Jews proved fatal. What do you make of his lack of interest in, in the political uh, goings-on? I think there are several bits. I think that historically Jews were unused to participating politically because they hadn't been allowed to. I think that it must have felt amazing for middle-class Jews to live in Vienna and feel they were living in a genuinely liberal culture. And I think wishfully they believed it would last, that actually they'd found a, a viable culture in which they could thrive. But it's worth bearing in mind in the middle of this that Freud appears to be extremely politically naive and actually refusing to acknowledge what's going on properly in Vienna at the time, while he's all the time producing theories about why people actually refuse to know things. So I think we need to see that link, even if Freud himself doesn't always make it, that Freud is absolutely preoccupied by the things people refuse to know about their lives and often suggesting that it is the most important things about one's life that one refuses to know. And I think that this is reflected politically when clearly the Jews were un under serious threat from 1933 onwards. And it took a very, very, very long time for Freud to believe that Hitler was worth taking seriously. Of course, Freud wasn't the only Jew who felt that. Nevertheless, it seems now, in retrospect, extraordinary. It wasn't then. It was ordinary. But what would that refusal to have acknowledged that uh, truth have meant? I mean, what was he... What does his refusal to know the truth about politics mean about himself? What was he refusing to deal with? Well, I think it's, I think it's, as he would say, wishful in the sense that he wanted to live in a relatively un-anti-Semitic culture in which Jews could behave like, as it were, normal people. And here was the resurgence of anti-Semitism on such a devastating scale, it was as though it would be unbearable to acknowledge it. Because were it to be acknowledged, of course, one would have to do something. 
And I think that's the point. I mean, one of the reasons that people repress their desires and feelings and perceptions is because once they acknowledge what they've repressed, they then have to do something about it. You said in an interview in the Paris Review that when you first read Freud, you saw a version of Jewish family life that you knew, that you recognized. How so? Well, my family were not psychoanalytic in any way. I never met a psychoanalyst. But the middle-class Jews of my family and their friends all talked about, well, primarily relationships, sex, money. And um, when I read psychoanalysis, I thought, of course, this is it. And, not in, and, and also in the sense that Freud actually is a very accessible writer. You know, whether you agree with it or interested in it is a different question. But if you are interested, you can read the books. They're not mystifying. And Freud has a genuine wish to, um, to start conversations off, it seems to me. Uh, so that when I read Freud, it made it very clear to me in a way that it hadn't been clear to me before that there was some kind of um, tradi- tradition of Jewish culture that as a British Jew, it's not that it's hidden from you or obscured from you, but the wish to assimilate was so powerful in my family and I think in lots of people that there wasn't real interest in that in a Jewish tradition of culture. And I think that's what was powerful for me. Freud's been raised up and knocked down so many times that it's hard to keep track of where he is now uh, in terms of popularity and in the culture. But from your perspective, what's the best he has to offer us these days? Yes, can I just say something about what's happened to psychoanalysis just briefly? Please. Um, I think there's a myth around, which is that psychoanalysis had a heyday and then it sort of disappeared. It was disproved. Freud was seen to be a fraud, all this sort of stuff. What I think actually happened was it's exactly like the story of a love affair. Freud began to write these books that were psychoanalytic. Certain people thought this was amazing. They fell in love with it. It was fabulous. It was the answer to everything. And then, of course, as in all love affairs, there was a catastrophic disillusionment. Suddenly people thought, not only is this not brilliant, it's rubbish. It's actually the last thing on earth we want. So it then goes. And the question is, as in a love affair, what are you left with after the disillusionment? Well, I think we're in that period in the sense that obviously psychoanalysis is only only of interest to people who are interested in it. And that's exactly the way it should be. Um, I think that there are things in Freud's writing that – Lots of people could be interested. And I don't remotely think everybody should be interested in psychoanalysis anymore. They should be interested in knitting. Um, you know, it's like ice cream psychoanalysis. You either really like it or you really don't. <laughs> um, but Freud has very interesting things to say about the fact that we really were once children, that those people really were our parents, and that the way our parents negotiated our needs and demands has a significant formative effect on our adult lives. He also takes seriously that we are really bodily creatures with bodily desires and that our needs are in excess of our capacity to satisfy them. So that frustration is the heart of the matter. Well, I think frustration is worth knowing about. And I don't mean by that because obviously we all know about it, but we don't know about it in ways that make it more bearable or more amusing or more interesting. Well, psychoanalysis is a story about that. It's also a story about how everybody is misogynistic and terrorized by their misogyny. Everybody's had a mother. Everybody knows what it's like to feel that your life is in somebody else's hands. Everybody knows what it's like to have the experience of somebody who can satisfy you and therefore can frustrate you. These seem to me to be fundamental human experiences. Now, of course, none of these ideas are going to last forever. Ideas have different kinds of shelf lives. But I think the preoccupations of psychoanalysis, which are to do with the significance of childhood development, sexual desire, and the fact of what one does with feelings 
one can't bear. These seem to me to be perennially interesting, preoccupying things, but only for the people who like it. Adam Phillips, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Adam Phillips is the author of Becoming Freud, The Making of a Psychoanalyst. Our conversation today was sponsored by Yale University Press on behalf of their Jewish Live series. Listeners, we want to know what you think. Does Freud have something to offer you today? We want to hear your thoughts. Please go ahead, post a comment on our website at tabletmag.com or send us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com. Also, make sure you are subscribed to Vox Tablet on iTunes or any other podcast browser. And also, if you're on iTunes, please, please be sure to write a review of Vox Tablet. We definitely appreciate all your input. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. We thank you so much for listening. Please do come back next week.